Listener supported. WNYC Studios. You're about to hear a recording of a live radio program. It's called Indivisible. You can listen live and call in four nights a week on public radio stations around the country or at indivisibleradio.com. You can also join the conversation with hashtag indivisibleradio or leave us a voicemail at indivisibleradio.com. Subscribe now so you don't miss a thing. Okay, here's the show. This is Indivisible, public radio's national conversation about America in a time of change. From WNYC Radio here in New York, I'm Charlie Sykes, and you're listening to Indivisible, public radio's new live national call-in show. And by the way, you know I'm in New York, but I've actually had lunch from a taco truck today, and I've lived to tell the tale. Four nights a week, four different hosts, four very, very different hosts are taking your calls so that we can get out of our echo chambers, if possible, and actually talk to each other about what's going on during these first 100 days of the Trump administration. And uh, there's a lot to talk about. Look, I, I know this may not actually help, uh, but but it, it's not just you. Uh, the world is, in fact, going crazy. And you know how you can tell. Because when you see these uh, you know crawls on the TV screen or a headline about the nuclear option, you find yourself hoping you're just talking about the Senate, uh, not some war that just started on Twitter. Um, so since we talked last time a week ago, Steve Bannon, told the media to keep his uh, to keep its mouth shut, and then he got elevated to the National Security Council, which would be a pretty amazing story if everything else weren't so amazing. Last Friday was uh, Holocaust Remembrance Day. That was the day when people were on, the, on social media sharing pictures of Anne Frank, uh, who had been denied refugee status, so the administration decided that apparently that would be the perfect day to announce its ban on refugees, uh, and then issued a statement on the Holocaust uh, that didn't mention the Jews. Uh, there were those uh, remarkable mass demonstrations over the weekend. Uh, the president fired the acting attorney general and then named his first Supreme Court justice. And uh, we are only day 12, only day, 12 days into this presidency. Um, now, we're going to get to all of those things. But what I want to do is I, I want to hear from you. Um, I'm going to tell you what we're going to be doing a little bit later in the program. I, I had some interesting conversations earlier today. Um, I, you know, I would, we'd been discussing what question I should ask. You know, are we safer? Are we not safer? What do you think of the Supreme Court? But um, frankly, I think that that would be pretty much the same old, same old. What struck me was that I had four conversations today, and I heard four different people use the phrase, I feel like I'm losing my country. What was interesting about it is that two of them were liberals, and two of them were conservatives, and they meant completely different things. So, if if you've been saying that, if you have some of the sense that maybe we're we're losing something that you think is is valuable, if you have that feeling, I mean, regardless of your political affiliation, um, that's what I want to talk about later. I want to I want to hear from you. So give us a call at eight four four seven four five talk. That's eight four four seven four five eighty two fifty five. And you can also send us a tweet using the hashtag Indivisible Radio. But before we do this, uh, I want to uh, I want to welcome in um, one of my good friends, somebody that I have followed and listened to for years and years, a fellow cheesehead, uh, fellow uh, Green Bay Packer fanatic, journalist, author, the editor of the Weekly Standard, uh, my good friend Stephen Hayes, who joins us via Skype. Hey, good morning, Charlie. How are you? I am great. It is good to talk with you again. It's good to talk to you. It's it's, it's odd speaking to you. Uh... In the evening, any time yeah. other than early morning. Well, you, you, you notice that I, I already screwed up and 
I already screwed up and said and said good morning. So, okay, I would, there's there's so much going on. I I, do, I just want to get to it. So you know, let let's 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 go back to the the so-called Muslim ban that's not a ban. The Clinton administration had the debate over the meaning of the word is. Now we have the meaning the debate over the meaning of the word ban. So let's talk about this because I know you follow this stuff very very closely. I sense there's just a lot of confusion about what that ban meant and what it didn't mean. So give me your take on what happened on Friday and Saturday. Yeah, I would I would argue that that confusion persists. I, I'm still not sure we we have good answers. I mean, what, what seems clear is that th- this ban um, grew out of uh, President Trump, then candidate Trump's, a pledge to effectively ban Muslims from entering the country. That's what he right. said. He put it in a news release. He was unequivocal about it. Uh, there was no sort of qualifying language. That was his initial promise. Shortly thereafter, you started seeing him walk it back over the course of of several campaign days, and and it ended up becoming something like what I think we've seen um, the Trump administration administration try to implement, which is a ban on refugees from countries that they say have a large jihadi mm-hmm. populations that could present threats to the United States, its interests, uh, both home and abroad. Well, you know that a lot of people in the administration and uh, the allies, like uh, like Speaker Paul Ryan, you know, came out and said, "Look, this is not this is not a Muslim ban. This is not a religious test. This is just simply designed to keep the country safer." So, what is your take? Do, does that do, do the, the steps that he took over the weekend? Um, will they make America safer? No, I'm not sure that they will. Um, I think, backing up, I think there is cause for um, the United States to take another look at our refugee policies uh, with respect to potential threats. We know for a fact that ISIS has been trying to infiltrate, uh, particularly into Western European countries, but also the United States, um, the southern border, the northern border, and elsewhere, uh, potential terrorists by posing them as refugees. It's something they've got designs on doing. There are these things called special interest aliens that have been transiting the southern border now for the better part of a decade. It's a relatively small population, but if if you have one that hits, uh, it's potentially a real serious threat. So I think it's worth taking a second look. The question is whether this is the most effective way to do it. And, you know, I don't think there was much of a debate about whether this was the most effective way to do it. And, you know, we saw Rudy Giuliani, uh, who was advising Donald Trump on these issues uh, over the weekend, uh, tell Judge Jeanine Pirro on Fox News that this was his way of implementing a Muslim ban, that Trump came to him and said, hey, Rudy, I want I want this Muslim ban that I had campaigned on. People want it. People think it's tough. Uh, can you can you find a way to do it and make it legal? And According to Giuliani's telling, this is what he came up with. What, what was most extraordinary, this leaving aside the actual policy, was the way that it was implemented and what it told us and showed us about this administration. The the level of of incompetence that that, that, that yeah. we saw, and you know, even Chris Christie's out there saying the president was badly served. I'm seeing headlines now that the White House is letting uh, you know letting people know that he was very very unhappy about the rollout. Um, so what did what did we learn about the way this administration is functioning that and, and, and why they would have decided to do something this consequential and this important without looping in the the competent professionals who would normally be involved in that? 
Well, I so so let me say I can understand their impulse. I think that the Trump administration came in and said, "We are going to make good on the promises that we campaigned on, and the longer we wait, the less likely it is that we'll be able to implement the policies that we were sent here to implement. And the more you involve sort of the 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 uh, endemic bureaucracy here in Washington, the more likely it is that things will get slow rolled or screwed up and." I, Donald Trump, I'm the candidate who campaigned against doing all of that. So but that's, he didn't, but he you didn't can understand even, He that. didn't even roll in his own people, though. I mean, you know, James Mattis, the Secretary no. of Defense, and obviously the humiliation exactly. of the Secretary exactly. of Homeland Security. No, you, you can understand that impulse, but he didn't do any of that. I mean, this what this really feels like is that there was some, and, and I'm speculating, this is not based on my reporting, lest people take me literally, it, it feels like there was some email exchange between Stephen Bannon and Stephen Miller, two of President Trump's top policy advisors, and they said, well, what about this? Yeah, what about this? What about this? This is policy. And then it was policy. I mean, that's that it had that kind of feel. And you know, there was this extraordinary New York Times story about uh, about General Kelly, Secretary of Homeland Security, the other day, who was in the middle of debating the particulars of this policy and how it would best be implemented and uh, who would have uh, oversight of, of certain aspects of the policy. And he looked up as he was working on this from his desk and saw Donald Trump signing the policy into law without having made any decisions about those particulars. So to, to call the process chaotic, I think, might actually be an understatement. No, and, I, and I think the real tell, of course, is that that they recognized that this thing had been kind of a foobar was the decision to move up the announcement of the Supreme Court nominee from from Thursday to Tuesday. Yes. I'm not going to even ask whether that, that was, was pretty obvious that, that, that this is an administration Donald Trump likes to change the subject. And this, of course, was the ultimate subject change. Let's go to talk about this This one. What did you think of the pick? Uh, Donald Trump names uh, 49-year-old Judge uh, Neil uh, Gorsuch. I think it's a good pick. I mean, uh, having talked to a number of conservative legal scholars in the weeks, actually in the months before uh, we got to this point. Uh, Gorsuch's name was one that came up pretty regularly. He's got uh, long experience on the bench. He's clearly thought about the kinds of issues that he'll be wrestling with as a Supreme Court justice. Um, he's he's often likened to an Ant Antonin Scalia, somebody who thinks like a Scalia, who reasons the way that Scalia reasons with sort of both a, sh a sharp wit and a sharp mind. Um, you know, and, and he presents well, certainly presents well. I think he'll do well in his confirmation hearings. For all of us who had questions about whether Donald Trump would make good on his promise to pick a conservative Supreme Court justice, and I'm one of those. Yeah, me too. I, I didn't necessarily believe that that would be the case. Uh, he seems in this instance to have come through. And, and he not only came through as a conservative, but and, and I'm, I'm listening to and I'm watching some of the response by uh, the Democrats who who knows whether they're going to uh, go all in on this. We'll get to that in, in a moment. But um, they, the, I think there's some confusion over what it means to be a conservative judge. It doesn't mean you're a conservative ideologue. And in the, in the case of uh, Judge Gorsuch, what really strikes me is here is a guy who really has a sense of you know constitutionalism, the rule of law, limited government, right. skepticism about an overweening executive. In fact, at a time when I think people on both the right and the left are thinking, are the courts going to stand up against an executive who exceeds his authority? 
Gorsuch is exactly the kind of jurist that you would want who's completely capable, I think, of pushing back against an imperial president. Absolutely right. I thought those were the two most striking aspects of his jurisprudence, at least as as far as I've I've seen it. One, his sense of the role of the, the proper role of the executive, and also secondarily, his sense of the proper role of uh, the the justice system. Um, you know, he he believes that that judges should do no more than what judges are tasked with doing, particularly by the Constitution. Um, and in that sense, he is a throwback to Antonin Scalia, and, and I think if approved, would bolster the wing of the court that that believes those kinds of things, holds dear those kinds of precepts. Yeah, there's a remarkable piece that was actually in the New York Times this morning by uh, Neil, I don't know how to pronounce his name, uh, Katyal, uh, former soli- acting solicitor yes. general under the Obama administration. So he is a liberal and makes it very, very clear. And and he said he writes why liberals should back Neil Gorsuch. He said, and the key question is, is the nominee someone who will stand up for the rule of law and say no to a president or Congress that strays beyond the Constitution and the laws? And he said, this is what he is. Now, having said that, it looks like the Democrats uh, are prepared to go full out, you know, full, you know, die on that hill. What do you think is going to happen? I think we have mixed indications, actually. I'm not convinced that Democrats really want to fight on this one, precisely because it appeals that Gorsuch will present himself so well. You have Democrats who, of course, uh, voted to support him in 2006, a good number of Democrats. Now, they can always get over that and say it was a different a different position, of course. Um, but But he seems like an unlikely person. Uh, about whom to mount this kind of bloody fight. I would be a little bit surprised if Democrats do decide to really take him on and and try to make it an issue as opposed to staging bigger fights over some confirmation battles for cabinet positions that they might have otherwise uh, kind of let slip or wait uh, on the possibility of a second Supreme Court uh, nomination that Donald Trump could have down the line. Okay, but now you're, you're, you're Chuck Schumer. And you make that calculation that this is, you know, that that uh, you want to save your ammunition for the next seat. You do not want to go all out on all this. Does he really have that option? Because the the progressive base is um, it is aroused, and uh, there is a real resurgence of activism out there. And I really get a sense a a, a sense among activists that they are, would not tolerate Democrats doing anything other than going all out against this nominee. Well, I think that's right. But remember, that's only a slice of Chuck Schumer's conference. He's also got to answer for the more moderate Democrats, particularly those who were elected in 2012 uh, on the coattails of Barack Obama and his reelection campaign, who will be up again in 2018, many of them up in states that are either red states or states in which Donald Trump did very well. I mean, this is going to be Chuck Schumer's dilemma for the next two years. He has this this hardcore liberal base on the one hand, including um, two or three or maybe more likely presidential candidates and Elizabeth Warren and Cory Booker and people are talking about Kamala Harris, even though she's relatively new to the, the Senate. Um, so he's got to please that liberal base. And there's no question if you just look around the country and look at the protests that we've seen over the past couple of weeks, that the liberal base is, in fact, aroused in in a way that, you know, the Tea Party base was was aroused or would later be aroused um, after President Obama's election. But on the other hand, if Chuck Schumer decides to, to fight every battle and to die on every hill, he is going to be taking with him uh, red state Democrats who yeah. can ill afford to be fighting Elizabeth Warren fights. I mean, if you're Joe Donnelly, a Democrat from Indiana, 
you don't want to be fighting on the same battlefield that Elizabeth Warren is fighting. You have very different constituencies and, and, there, and, and, and yeah. Elizabeth Warren wouldn't win in Indiana. Well, there's there's, there's another dynamic as well. Um, you and I have both been extremely critical of of Donald Trump, but we were supportive of of this particular decision. I cannot recall any time since the middle of 2015 where one issue united conservatives and Republicans. So this is the one issue that would unite the Republican Party and conservatives behind Donald Trump. So I, I, I guess I would, would, would share the, the, just the, the you know, gratuitous free advice that uh, uh, pick the battles, you know, pick, pick what you want to fight because there's, there's certainly a pushback that, yes, the, the base of the Democratic Party wants to have a full filibuster, but the base of the Republican Party is going to go all in on this one. I mean, this, this was a huge, huge factor for a lot of voters, and I know that we've had callers on before talking about this, but I think there were a, a, a remarkably uh, large number of voters who held their nose and voted for Donald Trump on this one issue, on this issue of the Supreme Court. Absolutely. And, and Charlie, I mean, you, you and I talked to many of those voters mm-hmm. uh, in Wisconsin before the election, people who would say, this is it. Like, this is the reason we are supporting Donald Trump. We agree with the arguments you make about, you know, his character. We agree that he's not a down the line conservative. We agree that he, uh, you know, could create instability that uh, we'd, we'd live to regret. But he's going to pick the right kind of Supreme Court justice or at least has a better chance of picking the right kind of Supreme Court justice than does Hillary Clinton. So we're voting for Donald Trump for that reason. Those people who cast their vote on that basis are thrilled today. They're absolutely ecstatic. Yeah, there's no question about it. Betsy DeVos. Does she go? Uh, does she? Uh, is she going to confirm? Is she, is she going to have to uh, have uh, Vice President Mike Pence break the tie? It's possible. I mean, anytime you start to see Republicans peel off, and you've got a couple of Republicans who have suggested that they're not uh, that they're not going to be with her. Um, you start to look around for other Republicans who may start to lose their nerve. And then you, of course, look at those same red state Democrats that we talked about um, who, who are going to be needing to find their to find ways, I think, as they make a case for, for reelection in 2018 to say, well, look, I was bipartisan in some respects. Is Betsy DeVos that kind of a person? I would hope that she is. I mean, she certainly established herself as a serious school reform advocate, uh, both school choice, which has gotten a lot of attention, but lots of other kinds of reforms. Uh, and I think it would be a great loss if she wasn't eventually picked as secretary of education. What, what struck me was when you, you know, that this is the one nominee because, you know, you have some other nominees who I think have some, you know, challenged backgrounds and, you know, have uh, have some other issues. And yet this was the one that they decided to go after. Hey, Stephen, it is so uh, great to talk with you again. Appreciate it uh, very, very much. And uh, um, you know, t- talk about uh, the you know the end of the world. You and I talking on public radio. I know, I love it, Charlie. Anytime. Thank you, Stephen Hayes, who is the uh, the editor of the Weekly Standard and a contributor to Fox News. Now we have to go to a break. You are listening to Indivisible, which is Public Radio's national conversation about America at a time of change. Back after the break. Indivisible is supported by Blue Apron, delivering gourmet recipes, pre-selected portions, and fresh ingredients to customers' doors. More at blueapron.com slash indivisible. You come to the New Yorker Radio Hour for conversations that go deeper with people you really want to hear from. 
whether it's Bruce Springsteen or Questlove or Olivia Rodrigo, Liz Cheney, or the godfather of artificial intelligence, Jeffrey Hinton, or some of my extraordinarily well-informed colleagues at The New Yorker. So join us every week on The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts. This is Indivisible, public radio's national conversation about America in a time of change. This is Charlie Sykes at WNYC in New York. Now, we're going to get back to your calls in just a moment. Right now, I want to tell you about something the NYC data news team and NPR have been cooking up around here. Since Donald Trump's travel ban was issued by executive order last week, we actually have no idea how our congressional representatives uh, feel about it all across the country. So WNYC and NPR are joining forces to get every member of Congress on the record about it, for or against. And you can see a current list by visiting indivisibleradio.com. And if you notice that your representative's not there, we've, uh, we've got information about what you can do to change that. Again, check it out at indivisibleradio.com. In the meantime, um, I want to open up the phone lines, uh, 844-745-TALK. That's 844-745-8255. You can also tweet, tweet us with the hashtag Indivisible Radio. I, I set this up a little bit earlier, and I just want to ex- you know, explain um, why I'm asking this question, because I was really uh, struck uh, by this, that I had multiple conversations about people talking about you know, why everything is so stressful, why, why they're so fearful, um, um, or why, why they have anxiety. And, and what they told me was that what was upsetting them the most was they feel they are losing America, they're losing the country. And what was interesting is two of them were liberals and two of them were conservatives, and they came at it from completely different perspectives. So that line... Um, we want to take our country back. That was that was Tea Party rhetoric. That was staple at every Tea Party. You heard it all the time. So it was very interesting for me to hear the same sort of thing coming from people on the left. So that's what I want to do. I want to pose this question. Do you think we're losing America? And specifically, what do you mean by that? Because obviously, if you feel that way, um, you have to have some idea. You must have some idea, some conception of America that you're envisioning. Uh, one of the people I was talking with who said this, said that she thought, you know, I feel like I'm losing my country because we're losing the Bill of Rights, that sense of powerlessness. And another one said, I feel I'm losing this country because, you know, I always thought of, you know, America as the shining city on the hill and, you know, the scenes at the airport over the weekend. Um, Now, obviously, others, we've heard this over the last campaign, think of it in economic terms and and by that, by, you know, we're losing our country. They mean immigrants. They mean people coming in, taking our jobs or foreign countries, taking our businesses. Um, and maybe some people think, you know, when you say we're losing America, they think uh, we're losing the America that we had back in the, in the, ni- in the 1950s. But uh, this may, who knows? We'll see how this goes. It may be something we share. Um, it makes what's happening now, I think, feel like it's an existential threat for so many people that something's slipping away, something that defined who we were. Maybe it's small towns where people stayed married to each other, kids grew up in an intact family, or I Maybe it's a political system where we could respect different points of view, or a political system that was not tearing itself apart. So again, uh, 844-745-TALK. Uh, let's go to, uh, let's go to uh, Linda from Princeton, New Jersey. Good evening. How are you, Linda? Good evening. Is it Charles? Charlie, yes. 
Hi. Good evening. Oh, by the way, before I say what I wanted to say, uh, I'm a lefty, I'm not an anarchist, who spent the better part of the last six years calling into every talk show on a CBS affiliate, AM, out of Philadelphia, which is a very right-wing reactionary um, talk show. And I, I've been very welcomed as a caller uh, because I have a sense of humor, and I want to hear what other people are thinking. Okay. Well, so I want to hear what you're thinking. in that Linda. respect. All right. To the point where I played Christmas carols for Linda? J.D. Hayworth, the Tea Party guy. Oh, now, 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 that, 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 now that's, that is out there. So do you feel you're losing your country, and why? I feel, uh, not that I ever thought I totally had a country, but for me, the finish was the first Persian Gulf War. And the indifference, by and large, except among certain people on the left, to what would have been the inevitable suffering on the part of Iraqi civilians. And the indifference to that, the recklessness of the whole thing. And a professor I knew at Princeton said, my dear, we've lost the republic. This is the moment. This is it. And over the years, everyone sort of forgot about it, including most of my lefty friends. They were on to other things. Um, and most of the right wing didn't know about it at all. Or if they did, they didn't care. And the left was indifferent in the same cruel way. So I think what's, being, what's happening right now is we're very obsessed with what's happened to the people who were flying over the weekend, the um, immigrants. Right. And those people have a right to be upset, the immigrants, yeah. some of whom were Iraqi people who had been uh, fled to Jordan in 1991. Okay, all right. Uh, Linda, I, I appreciate that. You know, um, I actually, you know, when, when I was talking with, with some folks about this, we were talking about, you know, moments when, when in fact we felt good about being Americans, and I understand her point of view. There are a lot of Americans who do think, you know, look back at that moment after 9-11, when Americans actually did come together for about five minutes. Remember, we were, we were unified for just a short time after September 11. I have to admit that I was amazed by the, the scenes that we, we, we had of, well, actually just getting to know the men and the women who actually went and fought in those wars, which, which were obviously ill-conceived. And I think in, re in retrospect, there's no question that they were, they were ill-conceived. But you know what? This country actually, I think, surprised us by the quality of these young men and women. And, and I, I, I remember saying at the time that this spoke to an America that we maybe had not appreciated that could produce men and women who would go, who, you know, the, the, the men and women who would, you know, run toward the, the, the burning buildings and everything. So I'd, I guess I would have a, a somewhat uh, different, uh, different take on that. So we're, gonna, we're asking the question, do you feel you're actually losing this, uh, this, this country? 799, I almost gave out the other number, 844-745-TALK. That's 844-745-8255. Let's go to, uh, is it Nadia? Nadia from Sacramento. You're on the air. Good evening. Hey, good evening. So do you feel you're losing something? Yeah, I feel like I'm I feel like I'm losing my idea of America as sort of a beacon of freedom and opportunity and equality in the world, although that's probably a naive point of view at this point. Well, it didn't used to be. That used to be the American idea. I you know not right. I want I want to play I want to play something for you here. I and, and yeah. because I actually think that there are that this the, the debate that we had over immigration, I, I think exposed really you know different visions of what the country is all about, but including real fundamental disagreements among conservatives. Now I want to play uh, a short clip from Ronald Reagan's final speech to the country. Let's just play this. 
I've spoken of the Shining City all my political life, but I don't know if I ever quite communicated what I saw when I said it. But in my mind, it was a tall, proud city built on rocks stronger than oceans, windswept, God-blessed, and teeming with people of all kinds living in harmony and peace. A city with free ports that hummed with commerce and creativity. And if there had to be city walls, the walls had doors, and the doors were open to anyone with the will and the heart to get here. That's how I saw it and see it still. Now, can you imagine Donald Trump saying those words? In fact, can you imagine any Republican saying those words? And yet, Nadia, you know, that used to be what conservatives talked about, talked like just a few decades ago. So that there, it's not naive, I think, to think of America as as potentially being that that shining city on a hill. But, but again, um, I think we've kind of descended into this uh, the sense that that maybe uh, that we we need uh, bigger bigger walls. Uh, our number eight four four seven four five talk. Uh, I want to hear from people all across the country on this. Let's go to uh, Dunwoody, Georgia. Alexander, good evening. How are you? Hey, how are you? How are you, Alexander? I'm doing well, thank you. Um, so, yeah, I was calling because, uh, frankly, I think we should take a step back and not uh, really look at it as that if we lost our country or anything like that, because then we're going to get in trouble and be in that same bubble mentality that um, we were at, at election night when we all were – a lot of people were, like, not expecting the outcome that happened, and a lot of people uh, were anticipating it, uh, yet they also thought it wasn't going to happen. Um, and when it did, everyone realized we were in these bubbles. And I'm afraid if, if we take a step back and really look at it, there's really a great opportunity for a political solution in terms of where we go from here. Because that American ideal that you're talking about, that folks are mentioning that they feel like they lost, it's, it's still there. It's an idea. It's always We've always been um, in a position where we could strive for that. And right now we have a real good opportunity politically for anyone who wants to do whatever it is your issue is. Um, to do it now, because give me an uh, idea. Frankly, give me an, give me an example of what you you specifically have in mind there. Well, I mean, the the main thing that gets me is uh, with labor. There's a lot right now. Labor's getting hit pretty hard, um, and that's why I'm talking to folks out here. I'm canvassing a lot in Dunwoody because I'm I actually announced my independent candidacy for the sixth congressional district for Tom Price's seat, and I'm just talking to a lot of folks about the inequality, and everyone's getting on board on simple ideas. They want to make sure Medicare's safe. You know, the safety net that was there that's been there for a long time. Uh, it's these simple, basic ideas that sort of drove folks to to strive for that American ideal that's still there. It's alive and well. It's just about igniting it and not being overcome by this this fear that isn't really there over over something that you could strive for that's still a reality. Right. Well, you know what? I, I do think – I'm not going to gloss over the fact that I think people are afraid. They're, they're afraid that, that, in fact, all of those things aren't possible anymore. Maybe, now, maybe he's right. Maybe, you know, underneath – um, we all do want this, this, the same sort of thing. But let's, let, let's keep going on all of this. Uh, Sarah on Twitter writes, we won't lose our country if we keep our, um, our ears and our arms open. I'm thankful to have friends that span the political spectrum. Well, but again, I mean, you know, part of this thought process here is you have to go back and say, when I say, the, you know, are we losing the country? Well, what is it that what do, you, what do you think of? I mean, you know, is, is it the shining city on the hill? Was it the 1950s little town? Um, is it is it the Bill of Rights? Uh, interestingly enough, this whole concept that America is an idea is actually a really radical point. Um, and this is something that, that that conservatives disagree about. I just want to let, let you know um, the uh, 
the, the, the concept that America is about freedom or represents certain aspirations. This is an idea that is rejected by the alt-right. You know, you've heard us talk about the alt-right. This is, the, you know, the, 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 the white nationalist, uh, nativist, uh, you know, folks that uh, I, I think have been somewhat resurgent. They don't think of America as an idea. They think of America as a geographical location with certain, you know, ethnic qualities, and therefore people who come into that physical area who don't have those ethnic qualities, are interlopers. And this is one of the reasons why we've gone from the 1980s, where Ronald Reagan is saying, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down that wall, to Donald Trump saying, build that wall. It's very different. It's not a a minor distinction. Um, Let's go back back to the phones. Do you actually feel you're losing it or not? And again, you feel free to to say, no, I I don't feel it. Uh, George from, um, is it Hazlitt? Hazlitt, New Jersey. Hazlitt. Yeah, Hazlitt. Hazlitt, how are you? Good. How are you, George? Good show. Thank you. Good show. And, you know, you hit nine out of the ten spots that I could think of. Uh, you know, when, when America used to be great, it was like after World War II, they thought it was great because they had a, a sense of unity. They had a common enemy. Now, everybody is your common enemy. Everybody is enemies. You're trying to just topple the next guy over so you can beat him out of a good life and win to your billionaire, you know, bank account goes home. And, and just the level of greed that's gotten so far out of hand where we where did it become fashionable to worship billionaires especially bankrupt billionaires <laughs> when did that become the thing to do and to bow to these people who are buying our government left and right and we have lost our government that's a fact you could look at it the you know the wars that they start not even declaring wars that they start the 9-11 farce where he goes into Iraq and Afghanistan. Right, I don't want to go into this, but, but George, you know, you know what is interesting? How many people that I've talked to on both sides of the political spectrum have this sense that they've lost the government. They don't know who is in charge of the government. And, and you know, honestly, depending on who you're talking to, it's somebody else re- responsible for it. Um, the... Uh, the the, the 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 role of billionaires is fascinating. Actually, I was on a I was on a television show earlier this morning where uh, uh, another prominent billionaire called in and he was uh, giving his thoughts and he had a lot of interesting things to say and I and it did occur to me as I was sitting there thinking, is this where we've come? That we're a country that we're we're going to have elections between this billionaire and that billionaire because you have to be ridiculously and obscenely wealthy. All right, let's uh, continue. Let's uh, let's go to uh, I want to go to uh, Rochester, Minnesota, in the Midwest. Linda from Rochester, Minnesota, uh, you are on the air. Good evening. Hi, um, my view is that uh, you know I think uh, the country and our people are losing respect for each other, and from the top down with the leaders when we start having our legislators or our potentially elected officials talking in their speeches as if it's okay to get that gun out and shoot somebody. And I'm, and I'm going back to what appalled me was with the Tea Party and Sarah Palin. Um, and, and to me, that's where that started. And I don't want to blame it all on Sarah Palin, but yeah, I, I, I think that lack of respect. Re- relitigate that. Well, you know, it is true, the lack of respect for, for one another and, and the, the, the coursing in the political discourse. Actually, I had a really interesting conversation, since I'm now repeating my conversations, um, with, uh, with a, a woman who has y- young children. And we were talking about just the, uh, the whole issue of character 
and whether character mattered and how we treat one another and why bullying is is bad and th- how difficult it is now to talk about those things in an era in which so many prominent people uh, not only famous not just celebrities but also people in power behave so badly i was watching an nfl game the other day and they have a they have a public service uh, announcement of a it's one of the players and he's showing a movie to some kids he's showing a film a video and of of a time when maybe he lost his uh, he lost his temper and he went off and he's telling the kids uh, you know telling these young people you know how what he did was was inappropriate you know he should have kept his temper he should have treated people with respect and i thought this is interesting you have the nfl you have this football player trying to inculcate this mutual respect and then you look at what happens in american politics you look at the man we have elected president this is this is a non-political piece of bit of fallout from this election, the effect that it has on the culture. And as we started talking about this, this woman actually began crying, saying how hard it was for her to explain to her children, because during the campaign, she'd explained to her children, well, you know, you know, th- th- this man has said these things and, and he's done these things and, you know, this is inappropriate. No, don't worry. This, this can't happen. And um, so that, that's that's something that while we're debating Supreme Court nominees and we're debating trade agreements and walls and all of those things, I think people are going to look back at this year and and uh, and wonder about what happened to the American culture. Uh, culture here. Um, Nat from Alexandria, Virginia. I understand that you were a first-time voter, Nat. Uh, I will. Yes, actually. I was, this was my first election I voted in. All right. So do you feel you're losing something, something slipping away? Um, yeah. I, uh, I, well, I would like to state first that I am a uh, uh, non-gendered person in the queer community. Uh, and I have always grown up fighting for um, rights and respect that I think people deserve as just being human. And I think this election has been so nasty, so like mean, I guess is the word, or disrespectful, that I feel like it has blossomed these people who feel as if they can just deny basic human rights to others. They they have almost come out of the woodworks and 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 thrived now. Well, it, you and, know, it, it is interesting you, you, you say that because I do think the campaign enabled a lot of things out there. You know, it, it also occurs to me that this is one of those moments where where people would say, you know, there's a reason why we value things like respect and civility. You're listening to Indivisible, which is Public Radio's national conversation about America in a time of change. I'm Charlie Sykes, broadcasting from WNYC in New York. We'll be back right after the break. Stay with us. Indivisible is supported by Blue Apron, delivering gourmet recipes, pre-selected portions, and fresh ingredients to customers' doors. More at blueapron.com slash indivisible. This is Indivisible. The number to call is 844-745-TALK. That's 844-745-8255. This is Charlie Sykes again at 
WNYC in New York. Now, we're taking calls from people who feel that they might be losing their country. Now, that may sound negative, but also what I want you to do is think about when we say your, your country, what, what are the values that you're willing to fight for? Because I'm, I'm, I'm not encouraging people to, to just give up or to you know, acquiesce in all of this, but to kind of think through it. You know, what, what are those non-negotiable things? You know, is, is America an idea? If, if we lose the idea, do we cease to be America? Or is, 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 is it economic? Is it something in the culture? Is it something in the political thing? Um, th- these are the kinds of questions that if you think it through, you have to sort of clarify your thinking. Our number again is 844-745-TALK. Let's go to uh, Brooklyn. Adam from Brooklyn, you're on the air. Good morning. Good morning. Hi, Good Adam. evening, Adam. You say it's years of habit. It's morning somewhere. Yeah, it is. That's true. Um, I don't know. I, I think we've relinquished our country, to tell you the truth. Uh, information isn't, or knowledge isn't respected anymore. People are more interested in Kim Kardashian's rear end than what might be happening in the Middle East. And I think everyone needs to take a little responsibility for being part of the ratings game and, and not holding not holding leaders responsible. You know, it is interesting. I was saying to somebody yesterday that uh, I'm so old, I, I can remember that um, I thought I was smarter when I didn't watch reality television, celebrity-oriented television, because I was paying attention to things that mattered. And it turned out, of course, that I, that I missed one of the most important political stories of our time, which is, in fact, that we have become this celebrity-besotted culture. And, you know, that, that was one of the things that happened. Um, you know, the, the caller makes it a, a, a point that is more important maybe than he realizes. And I don't want to need to pick on Kim Kardashian, but we have become the ratings-driven, celebrity-driven culture. And you really saw that with the news media. And I think pretty much everybody across the board fell, fell into this, that um, when they had the choice between going for the ratings, you know, putting on rallies— wall to wall, or actually doing in-depth, serious discussion of the issues, what did they do? They, they, went, they went with the ratings. They, they went with the shiny, this shiny gold object. Uh, I, I, I saw a study about how much they quantify, how much time the major network spent on the coverage, substantive coverage of issues. And it was shocking over the period of the year. So um, did we have we dumbed down our society? Um, have we distracted our society? Uh, absolutely. There's 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 really no question of, about it. Uh, let's go to uh, Eric from Syracuse, New York. Eric from Syracuse, you're on the air. Good evening. Hey, Charlie. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. So yeah, uh, I do feel that way that we are losing uh, the important parts, the values, the things that make America. America, you know, when I was a kid. In social studies class, we learn about the different branches of government and the checks and balances that are to be had. And one of the things that happened uh, over this past week uh, when the ban went into place on uh, these seven countries was the fact that this federal judge out of Brooklyn, um, you know, said, hey, I'm the, we're, this is the judicial branch, we're, we're checking this power of the executive order. And the uh, Department of Homeland Security went around and said, no, that's, your, your authority is no good here. That's what scares me and worries me more than 
the ban itself uh, or Trump's presidency. It's those kind of things happening. And the okay, check and balance is, is, is it going to surprise you, Eric, that I completely agree with you on all of this? And, and, and I think that, look, um, as a conservative, as a classical liberal, I actually think this is going to be a moment where we're going to learn to, you know, learn to um, love the idea of checks and balances or at least understand why the system works this way. Um, it is interesting the number of folks who have suddenly realized, hey, you know what? The federal government is way more powerful and unaccountable than it ought to be. The presidency is too powerful. The president should not be able to do this or that, and you should not be able to ignore it. The reality is, Eric, and this is a huge issue, and, and I hope this is going to be a huge issue in this in the Supreme Court nomination. One of the reasons why I actually like the the appointment, I kind of think that Donald Trump does not fully grasp the fact that he has appointed somebody who might actually limit that kind of overreach, who really believes in checks and balances. But I do hope we have this conversation because, you know, the system only works if the people in the system respect it. You know, we seem to assume that because we have a thing called checks and balances that it works, but that, that's, a, that's basically a slogan. It's not a mechanism. And our system, our system of government is set up to work with people who respect the norms, who respect the other branches of government. Um, you know, at some point we had to have a conversation about Andrew Jackson. It's interesting how many people are comparing Donald Trump to Andrew Jackson. Well, I, I think that's a conversation worth happening because it worth having because a- Andrew Jackson had a very, very interesting approach to the presidency and to minorities and to things like genocide, uh, but but also to the Supreme Court. Remember, you know, the uh, he the Supreme Court uh, issued an order and he said, well, they've issued the order, you know, let them enforce it now. What happens when you have a president who just says, I'm not going to uh, pay attention? What happens to a president who does not understand that under our system, we actually have three co-equal branches of government? And I think that we're going to see this tested. I actually believe, and I say this as a conservative, I actually think that the constitutional system is going to be tested, and I think it's going to be stressed more than we have seen it in a very, very long time. Our phone numbers again. Our phone number again, 844-745-8255. Let's go back uh, to the uh, the phones. Let's go back t- uh, to uh, Hartsville, South Carolina. Jan, you're on the air. Good evening. Hi. Thanks for taking my call. I, I do feel that we're not losing our country. Okay. I, I feel that, um, you know, the marches that are happening right now are... Um, are are showing that everyone still has a voice. And you, you talk about checks and balances as far as the branches of government goes. But I think the, you know, in thinking about what is America, is it a philo- philosophical yeah. idea? Yes, it is. It's about individual freedoms. And we still have the ability to um, to march, to have our voices be heard from from all sides. And that's what America is to me. And we're not losing it. This is it. This is everyone having their voice. And, um, you know, the pendulum swings back and forth, and it's a great thing. I I agree with the the pendulum swings back and forth, but I also also think that maybe sometimes as Americans we get a little bit complacent. We get a little bit, um, uh, you know, we we just simply assume 
that things are going to continue the way they are, that, that, that the system can absorb anything. So I do think that maybe this is a, mo- maybe this is a moment where, where we kind of remember why we care about these things uh, so, so much. Uh, let's go to uh, Indianapolis. Marta from Indianapolis, you're on the air. Good evening. Oh, hi. I just wanted to give a quick shout-out to my queer sibling mm-hmm. from North Carolina who called in just a few minutes ago, mm-hmm. Solidarity. Um, I think it's important to note that um, for those of us who are not straight, or more importantly for those of us who are not white, um, this country has never fully been ours. Um, I think that the, the promises of, of safety, uh, liberty, justice, freedom— um, has it gotten better? Really has it gotten better or worse? Pardon. Uh, I think that I think that it has gotten more, uh, gotten better, uh, especially in the past eight years. And um, for those who have been saying lead up, leading up to the election that we need to make America great again, uh, they are responding to that. That's a knee jerk response to reminders of white supremacy and ongoing injustice. Really? Okay. Do you honestly think that, though, that when people say, you know, make America great again, that that is, is a slogan for white supremacy? Would you be willing to concede that there are people who want America to be something that it once was or to be greater and who are not racists and bigots? I think that that nostalgia is inextricably tied to um, a... Uh, America that is more homogenous and America where um, some people don't make waves. Well, there, they, look, I can't speak for what goes on in people's hearts and minds, but I think, right. I think that if we're going to be getting out of the echo chambers, I do think that it, you know, and, and look, I'm, I'm not denying, I just finished a book with all kinds of chapters. I have a chapter called The Bigots Among Us. On the other hand, mm-hmm. dismissing half the country as supporting white supremacy, I think is somewhat is missing the fact that there's more of a diversity, that people have different reasons for taking the positions they have. And in a lot of ways, that is as stereotypical as the stereotypes that I'm guessing that you would like to fight against. Mm, I think that um, those who might have uh, voted in this last election for economic security or um, improvements of their prospects um, for for them and their families um, are are voluntarily put themselves in the same boat with people who voted for Trump. Uh, well, you know, I didn't because, vote. I, 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 I didn't, I didn't of vote for promises. I know, but I I do think that I think that to a certain extent it's too easy to say those things. And and I and I'm not I'm not a supporter, and I understand, and I do understand the the point you're trying you're you're trying to make here. Thanks for the call. I, I appreciate it. I'm not going to uh, belabor that. Um, Michael from Raleigh, North Carolina. Uh, you are on the air. Good evening. Hey, good evening, man. How are you? Good. How are you, Michael? Doing great. I, I do, uh, in one way, believe uh, we are losing uh, the America that I kind of grew up with, and uh, the way I see it is that. Um, uh, I like to call myself the, one of the last of a dying breed, being a, a younger generation, but uh, brought up on good values and you know hard work, work gets you in the uh, the place you want to be. And how old are you, Michael? You know, yeah, raising uh, raising Ma- a family. Michael, uh, you know, Michael, a, how old are you? Young... Yeah, how old I'm are you? Sorry? How old are you? Um, I'm 27. Sorry. Okay, okay, you're younger. Okay. 
Yeah, I'm young, and, you know, and I'm like, like I said, I'm still uh, raising a family and, and doing 70 hour work weeks trying to make it on this trek. And I feel like you kind of lose, uh, you know, where my father was a blue collar worker, but still making, uh, you know, could put together a six figure check and, and not really having any kind of higher education. Uh, I don't see that life being possible anymore, really, where you either have to go to school and be in debt for pretty much a lifetime and, and get a doctorate or something to be able to make, you know, make a six-figure paycheck or you're working for, you know, a couple bucks over minimum wage and just getting by, you know, pretty much scraping the bottom. So your, your father embodied for you the American dream, and you're following yeah, in his absolutely. footsteps with the same with the same values, and you're not sure that you live in that same that same environment. Yeah, you know, and of course, I I, I feel like in in ways I am. I'm, I'm beyond happy. I, I love my my son. I love my family. But uh, on the same note, I feel like you know ways I I'm letting them down because I can't kind of you know just financially wise give them everything that I was given, uh, and and everything I was given was just out of pure hard work. It wasn't you know, for the fact that he can make a great paycheck just by showing up to work. He had to work his, ass, you know, work his butt off, mm-hmm. and, and I realized that, and, uh, and I learned from that to do the same. And it's just, a, you know, whichever way I turn, you know, you're kind of getting by on a mediocre job and working twice as hard as, you know, something that could pay great, just not having the ability to get that higher education to get into you know, those kinds of positions. You know, you know, Michael, I, I think one of the things we learned in this campaign was that guys like you had become invisible for a while. And we yeah, go we go through we go through these like cycles you know. of history and we ignore certain people. You know, for years we, we ignored African Americans or we or we ignore other minorities or we ignore women. We got to a point where I think there was this huge middle class, working class who you know had the same values as their parents and somehow they were on nobody's radar screen. You know, the, 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 the Democrats were talking about other, other things, whatever. I don't want to get into, you know, you know, policy things. Republicans, you know, had, had their, their own, you know, if we just cut uh, taxes for the rich, you know, somehow that that's going to play out. And I do think that you cannot understand this campaign without understanding that you had millions of people like you, Michael, who said, hey, what, what about us? And it, it, it's, I think it's a big mistake to simply try to write you off as supporters of white supremacy because you wanted to have – some of those values and, and some of those opportunities back. Yeah, absolutely, hundred percent. I uh, mean, like I can take my my skills and and try to open up my own my own trade business, but you know, and, and that's like you know, being only twenty seven. I've tried it plenty of times doing you know handyman services and things like that, but you know, unless you get clientele, unless you get you know a lot of money to invest into to promoting yourself, there's really there's really nowhere to go with it. You know, you have to work for somebody and let somebody kind of hold the check over your head until, until you know, next thing I know I'm going to be 60 and, and trying to pay for bills. It's going to be crazy. Yeah, I, I think part of this is that, that sort of sense that I, 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 a lot of Americans, I think, um, kind of feel that they've kind of lost that control and they lost the power over their, their lives. Let's go uh, back to the, mid, the, the Midwest, uh, Minneapolis. Uh, Marlon from uh, Minneapolis, you're on the air. Good evening. Yeah, good evening. Yeah, I call because I think that there is a huge distraction that uh, America is in. We're so concerned about black, white, all these different uh, categories. The big, real category to me is rich versus poor. We, the poor people, are scrambling at the bottom trying to make a living. Rich people have all the money and all the policies. I, I can't believe we're having a discussion about, you know, 
fifteen dollars uh, should be, you know, uh, the, you know, you know what I'm saying? The, the, like we're trying to figure out how much money people should live on. These CEOs are making millions of dollars. They're making more than their whole entire organization. People can't even put food on their table, pay bills, health care is too high, gas prices, everything is too high, and everybody's talking about black versus white, Republican, Democrat. We're duped. We're food. And, and, and I see that as they got us all distracted and, 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 you know, Donald Trump talked a good game, if you if want to know the fact. But the fact of the matter is the picks and the policies that, he are, he, that he's putting out there isn't showing us that he really wants to work for the little guy. We're, we're left to kind of wait and see now to see if he really right. can produce. Well, yeah, I mean, we're, we're all waiting for that, you know, and the little guy. And, you know, we could have a longer discussion. I don't have enough time to get into that, uh, you know, whether the minimum wage is the idea. I actually think that one of the great challenges, and I hope we can have this discussion, is what our previous caller was talking about, I think, was, was, was a society that rewarded hard work, a society that rewarded people who you know, lived by the rules and created opportunity in those paths. And I think that's one of the things that we've lost. It's not just rich versus poor. It's like, are the doors open? Um, are we actually creating the kinds of environment and, and growth? Um, or have we become a society where you have people at the top and people at the bottom? And I personally, as a, as a classical liberal, as a, as, as a conservative, don't think that the answer to that is simply income transfer or, or, or government mandates. Now, I, you know, we have to help people who uh, are who are in, in need. We have to provide that kind of a safety net. But one of the things that I think that America had always been was a country that was dynamic and hopeful, and that hopefulness was that your children were going to be better off than you were. And that's something that if you ask that question all around the country, you have people who don't know, um, that don't, uh, are, are, not able, are not able to answer that that American dream lives for them. Hey, the, we, could, we, could, we could continue this for a long time, but this is, that's all for Indivisible tonight. And if this was your first time joining us, this is our new national conversation airing four nights a week during the first 100 days of the Trump administration. Tomorrow night, Minnesota Public Radio's Kerry Miller is going to talk about uh, Donald Trump's recent changes in immigration policy and whether they square with our identity as a land of immigrants. Until then, you can keep the conversation going on IndivisibleRadio.com, where you can leave us a comment or a voicemail anytime. I'm Charlie Sykes. I'll be back next Wednesday. If you like the Indivisible podcast, rate and review it and tell your friends. And thanks for listening.